0: What should we do, what should you do, if you see someone that you love going in a dangerous direction in life? Someone who is going in a direction that's going to be harmful for themselves and dangerous. Should you avoid the issue at all costs? Should you encourage them and tell them that they are going to be okay, it's all going to be okay in the end? Is that loving? Is that the loving response? Well, as much as they might not want to hear it, and they probably don't, there is a time for a needed and well-timed rebuke, isn't there? It might sound obvious, but it's not so obvious. We often times are more concerned about losing a friend, about our own reputation, about what people think of us. We're often more self-centered than we are loving. But is it really worth it in the end? That's what we need to ask. Uh, Something I learned from a recent uh, parenting class that I was in is, and some of you are going to say, well, this is obvious, and all of it is kind of obvious, isn't it? (laughs) Um, You should have known that before. (laughs) Um, Is that children will always, at least at the beginning, Think that they are right and think that you are wrong. <laughs> isn't that true? And that your responsibility is to teach them that they're not right and that they need to listen to you. That's like Parenting 101, isn't it? <laughs> Paul Tripp was the one who did the, who did the um, parenting class, and he said, Why are you so surprised when your kids think they are right? Right? <laughs> Why are we so surprised by that? Well, God is now speaking to his people. Last chapter, remember, he spoke primarily to Babylon and pronounced judgment against them. But now God is speaking to his people. And actually, this is a conclusion to a major section. We went from chapter 40, and it concludes, this section concludes in 48 that we're looking at today. So this is really bringing everything together. And now God is speaking to his own people who are in Babylon. And he is giving them a strong and loving rebuke. This is what they need to hear. This is a rebuke from God. And boy, do we need to have our ears open to hear what God has to say. You see, they think they are in the right place. And maybe that is true of some of us. Right? They think they're in the right place, but they are not in the right place. God must therefore rebuke them for their own well-being. And that's exactly what he does here. He must, if he cares for them, if he loves them, and he does, then he must direct them to his voice. He must even hurt them in order to heal them. (laughs) Right? And that's what he does in this passage. Every one of us if we are to be saved, must go through the painful process of rebuke. It is impossible to ever be saved unless we are rebuked. And isn't that what repentance is? Is the recognition of God's voice of rebuke? Because every one of us is going in the wrong direction. (laughs) And when we're rebuked, the right response is to listen to God's voice and confess that He is right. Every one of us needs to be rebuked if we're ever to be saved. We are rebels by birth. We are rebels in heart. Even as believers, we need to constantly, daily hear the rebukes of God's Word. And this is such a negative thing to us as Christians sometimes. We think rebuke is something negative Rebukes are good, and I hope we've been seeing that as we've been going along in Isaiah, the importance of hearing a word of rebuke. That is loving, it is caring, it is for your good. And only those who bow to God on His terms can possibly be saved. And without rebuke, our waywardness would never turn into repentance. We would never be saved. Think about that. I fear there are many of us in church Right now and today that think we are right because we outwardly hear God's word being preached all the time. We might even be reading the Bible all the time. But we've never truly heard the voice of God. We've never really felt the rebuke of God. We've never really been convicted and repented. So we all need to hear God's loving rebuke today. We need to hear it every day. How much more today? Alright, we need to know what God requires of us, right? We need to know, what does God require of us? So what does God require of you? God requires this. And this is so simple. But it's really the theme of this chapter. God requires that you listen to His voice. This is really all He is calling His people to in this chapter. He is simply calling his people to listen to his voice. And actually the word here occurs ten times in this little chapter. And at least three times it comes as a command for his people. Listen to these times that the word here comes up. Verse one, hear this. Verse 12, listen to me, O Jacob. Verse 14, assemble all of you and listen. And verse 16, hear this. And then verse 18 Oh, that you had paid attention. Here's a question that might at first appear quite obvious, but I think we can easily misunderstand. What is meant when the prophet Isaiah, through God's inspiration, commands for us to hear? What does it mean to hear? You see, we might assume that God is saying technically he wants us to hear a vibration in our ears, right? He wants us to hear something that's some some words that are spoken, right? As if hearing simply means to hear the noise that someone says. But that is not what God means when He calls His people to hear. When God calls us to hear, it is more than that. The hearing God calls for us to do requires an active response of obedient faith. God requires that we hear in faith. To hear is an imperative. And without exception, it always requires a response that obeys what is being told. You don't hear unless there is an obedient, appropriate, obedient response to what has been said. Those who do not obey cannot have said that they actually heard what God said in any meaningful way. Because the response of faith is going to be obedience. Now when I was thinking about this, and I was thinking it's kind of like when I ask my son again, I say, "Did you hear me?" <laughs> right? When something is still not done, when I ask him over and over again, it's still not done. Did you hear me? Did you hear me? He say, "Yes, Dad, I heard you." And I say, "No, you didn't. It's not done. It's not done." This is kind of like the hearing that Jesus calls for when he says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. He was calling for an active response of faith to what he says. And this is the only hope of our salvation, is that we actually hear what God has to say, that we hear the actual voice of God. Otherwise, we cannot be saved. And that's what characterizes the people of God, by the way. What characterizes the people of God, what what they are known for, What identifies them from the rest of the world is that they, like no one else, can actually hear and do actually hear the voice of God. Jesus said this, my sheep hear my voice. John 10 verse 27. Jesus said, he who hears the word and does them is like a man who built his house on a rock. Right? Those who are not saved are those who don't hear. So this brings us to the big problem that God is concerned about in this chapter. The problem is that man does not listen to God's voice. Even when placed in the best position possible, right? Even when we're given all the blessings outwardly of God, we do not listen to God's voice. We cannot hear it and we will not hear it. This is a very bad condition, isn't it? This is a very bad condition. There's no worse condition than this. And we need to understand the reality of our condition before God. And so God accuses his own people of refusing to hear, of being rebellious, despite claiming otherwise. You see, of all people in the world, you would think that God's people would listen to God. You know how many times God has given his people a reason to hear him? Over and over and over again, God delivered them. He spoke to them. He treated them like no one else if there was any outward um, motivation that could empower people to hear, if there is any good within them. And Israel is really uh, the test case, aren't they? <laughs> to find out if there's anything good in us. They were given the opportunity to, opportunity to respond right to God. And they were given every privilege and every blessing. If there was even an ounce of good in them, they would have responded right to God. And if they do not listen, it shows us that we are in a terrible condition. Now, they would have claimed to respond properly to God, and that's exactly what they're saying here. They would have claimed to have, to have heard from God. They would have claimed to have been the people of God. And if you look, if you notice how God identifies them here as people who should have heard the voice of God, but also notice what they claim about themselves. And how they conduct themselves. And how they identify themselves. And there is phrase after phrase after phrase. As if God is focusing on how they claimed to be the people of God. Everything outwardly about them. Everything they believed in. Was apparently or claimed to believe. And claimed to be true about them. Would suggest that they were the people of God. Listen. God identifies them as the house of Jacob. Called by the name of Israel who came from the waters of Judah. They were given birth from Judah. But notice what they would have identified themselves as. They would have sworn by the name of the Lord. And that's not a bad thing, by the way. That's not a bad thing. It's it's to make our oath in God's name. God called for that. It's an act of devotion towards God when done correctly. It identified themselves with God. It connected themselves with God. It was a way of honoring God. They would confess the God of Israel. Not only would they make their oaths in God's name, but they would confess the God of Israel. And what this means is they would have remembered God in the sense of they would have brought Him up in their conversation. They would have talked about Him. They would have spoken of Him when they went about. Perhaps in conversation, maybe through rituals, they would have performed the rituals that God called them to do. Maybe even giving thanks. When they ate a meal. But they would have confessed the God of Israel. They would have called themselves after the holy city. Even while in Babylon, these people would have said, we are, we are from Jerusalem. We are God's people. They would have identified themselves as God's people. And it says here, they would have even stayed themselves on the God of Israel. In a sense, they would have claimed to be leaning on the God of Israel. They would have claimed to be trusting and the God of Israel. So this is what they claimed. This is what they would have said about themselves. And this is what they would have looked like. But listen to the scathing charge that God makes against them, despite all these things that they would have claimed. He says they do all these things, but not in truth or right. Can you imagine hearing those words after claiming all these things about yourself? Despite what they claimed, they were a living contradiction. There was no inner reality. They were hypocrites. They professed one thing, but only the form of it (laughs) did they live. Only the form of it did they acknowledge. They had no inner reality of a relationship with God. They were saying something, but not living it. This is a sobering reality for us. That you can identify as God's people. And notice, this is really important. You can even have all the truths down. As far as knowing them. These people would have been orthodox. These people would have been doctrinally sound in what they said and what they claimed. Not only that, they would have gone through the right forms and the right functions. They would have known how to conduct themselves at church. They would have known how to look and how to act when they were at church. They would have known how to cross their T's and dot their I's. And yet, with all of that, having all the form down, all the doctrine right, they were not sincere. You can make the right profession of faith at one point in your life, and you can even continue to make a right profession of faith, and still not be right with God. You can even act in a way that seems legitimate and right, and have the right form and not be right with God. How can this be? I, I, I realize that we hear this and we wonder, how can this possibly be? And I think when this happens, when we are content and satisfied with simply having the right practice and knowing the right things. I think we can be satisfied with having the right knowledge. Rather than being satisfied with the one that the knowledge is pointing towards. Rather than being content in Christ, we can be content in our knowledge. This is a real danger for us, who are passionate about knowing the right truths. We need to be careful with where it's leading us. You know, it's it's easy to be associated with this group of people and to say those who are associated with this group of people, with this man, are in the right. That is very dangerous, right? When we start thinking that some man or some way of thinking is the standard rather than God's word and leading us to God himself. Now, I'm not saying we can't identify with certain people. I'm not saying there aren't certain groups that have it more right than others. Absolutely, and we need to identify them. But I'm saying we've got to be careful of where it's leading us and where our, our satisfaction comes from, where our hope lies. Is there real life within us? Or is there no reality within you? Do you have the form of godliness, but deny its power? 2 Timothy 3, verse 5. You can be not wrong and not misguided, but simply empty. Think about that. You can be empty. God explains in the past how he worked with his people. And what he's doing here is is acknowledging and exposing the wickedness of his people. All right? God explains in the past how he worked with his people because of their rebellious condition. And he says this in verses 3 through 5. He says the reason he worked the way he did throughout Israel's history is because of Israel's rebellion. And we're given some great insight here about how God works. We're, We're given an inside scoop to the way God works. So how has God worked in the past with his people? Well, God would continually tell them beforehand what he was going to do in delivering them. He was going to say, I am going to deliver you. And then he would go about and bring this great deliverance. And so the question is why did God work this way? Why did God speak to his people and tell them that he was going to deliver them beforehand? And the answer is given here is because they would have otherwise attributed the victory to idols. They would have said the idols delivered us. And ultimately they would have said we delivered us. <laughs> because that's what idols are. <laughs> Our own creation. It's a back door to ourselves and giving ourselves the glory. And so why did he need to do this? What is the problem here? What is God acknowledging that's the problem here? And notice how he describes his people. They're obstinate, hard-headed, rebellious people. Their necks are like sinews of iron and their foreheads like brass. That's not a good thing. The image is of a stubborn animal that digs its heels in the ground and will not obey its master. In fact, they don't want to obey their master just because their master said so. They will not do what they are told. Have you ever tried to argue with someone who was already convinced against what you were saying? Have you ever recognized how foolish that is and how hopeless that is? Well, here is God. Here is God Himself. And he is speaking and working with the people who have no interest in doing what he says. And this is exactly where Israel was at. And then he continues to explain that this is the way I worked in the past because of who you were. But then he says in verses 6-8, through this is the way you are today. (laughs) And I'm going to continue to do the same thing. I'm going to continue to pronounce new things that I'm going to do to you. So that, so that in order to win your heart, because you are rebellious people, so that you won't give credit to the idols, and so you won't say that I knew beforehand this was going to happen, right? Notice how God is combating them on every side. They would have given credit to idols, right? And now God says, I'm going to do new things, I'm going to tell you new things, because you haven't changed. You're still rebellious, you're still wicked, you still have the same hearts, And I'm going to tell you just before it happens because otherwise you would have said, I knew it was going to happen anyway. I don't need to depend and trust in God. So it's almost as if he needs to tell them beforehand so they don't give credit to idols. And he needs to tell them beforehand so that they don't um, depend on themselves. God has to tell them right before it happens. (laughs) And notice what God is doing here is just saying that you're rebellious. He says, And that from birth you were called a rebel. And what are these new things? These new things likely refer to the fact that Cyrus is going to deliver them. And ultimately, as we're going to see in the next chapter, we're about to move to the, the great. Um, from Cyrus is about to kind of go into the, into the past, into the, um, into, the, into, the, into the horizon. And Christ is going to come out and be magnified before our eyes, the ultimate deliverer. And so you say, well, didn't God already tell them these things? How are these things new? Well, the answer is they haven't heard them even when God has spoken to them. And that's what it says here, right? It says, you have never heard, you have never known, from of old your ears have not been opened. Your ears has not been opened. Remember in Isaiah chapter 6, what God told them, the same exact thing. That you will preach, but they will not hear. They will not hear. Does this condition describe you? Do you find yourself having trouble hearing the words of God? Do you find yourself trying to work your way around the rebukes of God? Trying to find your own way of doing things without submitting to God? We need to hear from God today. And we need to ask ourselves if we are listening to God. The road of destruction is the road of failing to listen to God. You see, we're not blank pages to be written on, either good or bad. (laughs) We are evil. And we are no different than Israel. We need God to give us ears to hear. And we need to keep praying, God, open my ears, open my eyes, open my heart. Keep me humble before you. What did David say? Search me and try me and see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That requires that we hear the word of God and that we listen to him. So you have to ask, why does God act this way towards his people? Why does God continue to be gracious towards his people? What is motivating God at his very heart to save his people? They are no better than the Babylonians. Do you get that? Do you understand that? God's people are no better than the Babylonians. They should be treated the same way the Babylonians are. But God is so gracious and so kind and so patient with his people. Why is he doing this? Even disciplining them. Why is he doing this? Why is he so kind to them? And the answer is, in this incredible insight. If you can get this today, then you will be so much better off. (laughs) This is something that the church needs to understand. It's foundational and bedrock to understanding who God is. And the answer is, God has been kind to them for His own sake. For His own sake. Listen to these words. I have to read them. "For For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it from you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake... For my own sake, says it twice, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I'll not give to another. See, God is patient not primarily for the sake of your well-being. God is not patient with his people primarily for their salvation and their well-being. Nor is he patient because there's anything in you that's worthy of being patient about. Both of those things are not the foundational reason why God is patient with anyone today. God is patient and listen to this believer for his glory, for his namesake, which is the greatest and most comforting reason of all. God says the deepest motive of his heart for saving you believers is for his own glory. What is keeping God's judgment from being poured out on you is not ultimately the desire for your well-being, nor ultimately um, because of anything good you've done, but ultimately for the praise and the glory of God. He will not share His glory. This is all for God's name. This is kind of like 101 of what it means to be God, right? God must love His glory above all else if He is to love what is supremely glorious. If God is to love what is glorious and what is beautiful and what is good and what is excellent and what is worthy of being loved above all else, He will love Himself supremely. That is what it means to be God. God does everything in the universe, according to Ephesians 1 verse 14, to the praise of His glory. God's glory is the number one reason why He acts in judgment and the number one reason why He acts in salvation. One man was thinking back to a conference that he was at where the speaker shouted this dramatically. Listen to this. Is there anything in the universe worth more than a human soul? If you can think of anything, I challenge you to step to the microphone right now and tell us what it is. The man said, At this moment, I thought of an answer. The glory of God! (laughs) God's glory is worth more than the salvation of every human soul. I think if I had stepped up to the microphone and said that, the pastor might have said, Oh yes, of course that, that. But other than that, (laughs) you know, this explains why God refines his people through the fire of affliction rather than destroying them. If God destroyed them, he would be seen as unfaithful and as no better than the idols. Do you understand that? If God did not save his people, if he destroyed his people, then the nations would look around and say, your God is no bigger than the idols that are all around us. He is just like them. He can't do anything. It would diminish the glory of God among the nations. And also, if God did not refine His people, they would not bring Him the fullness of glory that He deserves and that He's going to get from His people. For God's praise to be the greatest, He must refine His people so that they would reflect His glory. And He takes them from from judgment from unworthy sinners who do not desire God at all, and His bringing them to people who love the glory of God above all things is His glory. <laughs> that is His glory. The whole process is His glory. And so the greater the distance that He brings us, the greater reflection it brings to the glory of God. And we see that through His people Israel. So God will show His glory through the refining and the saving of his people from Babylon. So you might wonder, what does God mean when he says he does not refine them as silver? How is a refining process not like silver that God's people go through? And what I think this means is that if God were to refine us as silver, there'd be nothing left of us. (laughs) There'd be only dross, only the, the bad stuff. Instead, he continually works to refine us without destroying us. He disciplines us rather than destroys us and praise God for his grace. But you might look at this and say, well, if God is intent at bringing himself glory, then this doesn't really look that glorious. I mean, his people returned right to Jerusalem, but that salvation didn't really look all that great. You know, it was nothing near the glory they had beforehand. They even cried and rejoiced at the same time when they built the... Built the, when, they, when they built the Jerusalem back up. Because it wasn't near the glory they once had. And even the people continued to rebel against God. They didn't change, even after going back. So you say, well, this doesn't look that glorious. How was this a glorious salvation? The answer is because Israel was always intended to be a type of a greater salvation. It was never intended to be the final means of salvation. God always intended, through Christ, to ultimately save his people from their corruption of their hearts. Jesus is the ultimate and the great Savior. And it is only through him that we see the fullness of the glory of God. And all of history is pointing us towards him. Showing us we can't be saved apart from Christ. There is no way of saving us. That we are wicked and rebellious people. And Israel is the great example of that. It shows us that. So the question is, why in the world does this even matter? Why do we really need to understand this? Couldn't we go ahead and say that God saves us primarily for our well-being? Is it really that big of a deal? Is it just semantics, you might ask. And one, we could go on and on about this, but one reason why it's so important that we understand this is that understanding that God saves you for his glory gives you the greatest assurance and security and the greatest hope that you could possibly have if we want to be a church that's grounded and secure in our hope of Christ, and in fact, if we want to be a people who are freed from fear, if we want to be people who are bold and courageous for Christ, it will, will not come to us unless we understand that God works and acts for His glory. Because if God is going to save you for His glory, it is not possible that you will not be saved. If God is determined to save you, there is no greater foundation for your salvation other than the glory of God. If God's glory is at stake, he would just assume be less than glorious than not save you. And that will not happen. (laughs) So what great confidence can we have if we understand the God-centeredness of God in salvation? Even discipline is for your salvation and for God's glory. And it means there is no sin that could ever keep us, outdo the grace and the mercy of God in saving us, as Paul showed. And this should cause our hearts to rejoice. Ray Ortland said this, You need to know that God would have to stop being God before He'd quit on you. And why is God devoted to you? It is not because you risk." looking like a failure, you already do. And so do I. It's because God will never let His purpose fail. The defeat of grace to sinners would be the defeat of God. So the supreme God graciously gives His people who hear Him motivation to listen to Him more. And that's what the second half of this chapter is about. The surprising path of our good runs through rebuke. We must go through the rebuke of God if we are ever to end up at a good place in life. So what should motivate you to respond properly in hearing God today? Well, what should motivate you to listen to God is who God is. God explains again that he is the supreme being and the all-powerful creator. And and let's hear this again again. We've heard it over and over again, but this is what we need to be reminded of every day. I am He, I am the first, and I am the last. My hand laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand firm forth together. God says, I am the name that is supreme. I am the other. I stand outside of all creation. We've said this over and over again, and this is kind of like the climax of it. He is saying, I am God, and there is no one like me. Remember, the Babylonians blasphemously claimed that for themselves. And God says they will suffer the judgment of God. What also identifies God as supreme is that his identity is the creator. And this keeps coming up over and over again. God says he spread out the heavens with his right hand. I love it. And therefore, therefore, because I have supreme power, listen to me. Listen to me. That is the only right response. So what should motivate you to listen to God is the proof that He gives that He is who He says He is by foretelling the future and fulfilling it. And we see that in verses 14 through 16. God says, I will deliver my people through Cyrus. And God says, that is the proof that I am the supreme God because I can tell you what's gonna happen in the future and I can direct all of history to fulfill my purposes. And really, there's no greater confirmation that God could give his people than by telling them what he is going to do in the future and then fulfilling it. And as strange as it might sound, I know this sounds a little strange, but God saving his people is a a very big side dish to what God is doing here. That's not the main course. That's not the main meal. The main dish is God showing that he is supreme by announcing beforehand in fulfilling his purposes. Because it shows that he is the supreme God. That is his purpose. And that is what he's doing. Verse 16 sounds somewhat strange because it sounds like someone just threw this this this, this into there, and it doesn't seem like it really fits, does it? But I believe what verse 16 is telling us is that the Messiah is coming. <laughs> I think that's almost a preview to chapter 49 in the rest of Isaiah, where where the Messiah is going to explode on the scene. And we look forward to that. What should motivate you to listen to God is simply the benefit of listening to God. You should listen to God because it is of greatest benefit to you. So this doesn't mean listening to God is not for your benefit. In fact, because it is for the glory of God that He's going to save you, it is also for your benefit that you listen to Him. They work together. God explains the benefit that belongs to those who listen to him in verse 17. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord your God who teaches you to profit and leads you in the way you should go. Listen to the riches of hearing from God. There is only profit. And that's not the health and wealth gospel that talks about earthly benefit. This is true, eternal blessing. There is only eternal, true blessings found in listening to the Word of God. And one of the things I do when I meet with people is I I often talk to them and say, Are you reading the Bible? And I have to explain to them what that means. Because sometimes we're praying, sometimes doing a lot of things, and we're not reading our Bibles. And I say, You will not be blessed. God will not strengthen you. You cannot find salvation. You can't find anything if you don't read the Bible. And, and it's kind of like someone asking God to help them when he has put, 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 the, put the, the, the river right in front of you. You've got to drink of the word of God and pray. This is where we hear from God. We need to read the word of God. What this means for us is that we are the most blessed people in the world. We can hold in in our hands the word of God. We are so blessed. And sadly, many will fail to listen. And God expresses this. If only they had listened in the past, the benefits they would have received in verses 18 through 19. You see, it doesn't matter how many Bibles we have. It doesn't matter how many privileges we have. It doesn't matter how many prophets speak to us. The question is, will we listen to the word of God? And will we know the blessings of it? Let's not take God's word for granted. Let us not fail to listen. And let us pray and beg God, open my ears, open my eyes, give me a heart to hear from you. And may my life reflect not just the outward form, but the inward reality of someone who hears the voice of God. And that is one of the ways we can examine our lives and ask ourselves, am I a child of God? Do I listen to God? Do I desire to listen to God? And when I don't feel like it, Am I crying out to God to give me that desire? We need to hear from God. God gives his people who will listen instructions regarding what to do in the future. They are to get out of Babylon, right? When God brings Cyrus to deliver them, at that moment they are to get out of Babylon and to escape. And God says, just like he has in the past, you don't have to worry about getting back safely to Jerusalem. God will take care of you. And so God says, flee the judgment. Just like Sodom and Gomorrah, flee, get out of there, right? Get out of Babylon. And we, like exiles, right, we hear God's word. And we say, yes, Lord, we will get out of Babylon. We will flee and we will run to God's kingdom. But only if you will listen to God's word. And what joy and what celebration should characterize our lives We have a great Savior. We have a great deliverance today. And we should be filled with joy and celebration. And notice what a strange ending to this, to what God is, the message God is giving. The concluding word here is a note of warning for us. Sobering word of warning. If you do not listen to God, no matter what you claim about yourself, there is no hope for you. Verse 22, there is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. God makes one more clarification for us to keep ourselves from being deceived so we're fully aware. We are so good at deceiving ourselves, at claiming one thing and being another, just like Israel did. But know this, if you do not have an ear to listen to God's word, there is no hope of you ever finding peace. And the peace here talks about the peace with God, the true eternal peace of knowing that we are in a right standing with God. And every single person needs to hear the rebuke of God today. That if you are not right with God, then you need to be made right with God. You need to make peace with God. Don't be fooled, there is no peace for the wicked. And every one of us, naturally, are outside of God's favor and are rebellious and wicked people. If you fail to listen to God, you forfeit peace. This reminds me of Matthew 7, verse 20. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we not prophesy in your name, produce many miracles, and drive out many demons? And then I'll say to them plainly, I never knew you depart from me. You would practice lawlessness. It's a scary, scary, sobering thought. So what if a rebuke was necessary to lead you to the path of life? Would you listen to it? Would you take it in? Would you receive it? Or would you reject it? Would you go around it like the Pharisees? Would you find some way of having a form of religion but denying its power? The most important question each of us needs to ask is this. Who is God and what does he require of me? Who is God and what does he require of me? It is always costly to hear a rebuke, isn't it? And perhaps there is no greater cost than this, right? Our pride, our self-sufficiency, our independence. But the cost, as we know, is sometimes worth it. And how much more worth it is it in this case? Unless you hear the rebuke of God, you will not be saved. And as believers, my encouragement for you is not to hear the word of rebuke as something that is destroying you, as something that is, that is after to destroy your joy. That is not what the rebuke is for. You, you hear that throughout this passage. The rebuke is for the benefit of God's people, So daily, daily listen hard to hear the rebuke of God in his word. Daily try to hear the voice of the loving, caring God of God's word. Let this church be a church that embraces God's rebukes. And let us help each other to hear them well. Let us not tear each other down. Let us learn to speak to each other in a way that communicates, I love you, I care for you. And here is God's rebuke for you, for your good and for his glory. Will you listen to the voice of God today? Come to me, all you who are weary and laden, and I will give you rest. Let's pray.